Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Yes, 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 how it feels to be free. Um, This past weekend was about almost 50 years ago. The Woodstock Music Festival was happening in upstate New York. And, of course, this brings back a lot of memories for somebody in my generation. Um, There are, um, well, (laughs) lots of things to talk about, but uh, we can only talk about a few, right? But before I go on and say anything else, a a qualification about this, and sometimes when I talk about things that happened in my life or in the 50s or 60s or 70s or something, or maybe even in modern times, way into the 80s, right? That's what happens when you're old. That's modern. Um, A qualification, uh, something I guess I would have to be called a qualification. 
for a long, long time now, obviously, long time, and this is in part a function of, of me being brought up white, lower middle, or middle class, there's something that I've known for a really long time. Uh, and as I prepare for these shows, uh, even telling something of my personal life, that there's no talking, there's no talking about anything having to do with American history, politics, or culture without at least mentioning race and class, especially race. There's just no way, there's no way you can talk about it. Um, it's something that's in the absolute, it's in the bone marrow, in the bloodstream of everything that's American from the very beginning up until obviously until this moment. Um, but as far as Woodstock is concerned, just suffice it to say that Woodstock in itself uh, was an event uh, or a celebration, whatever you want to call it, even a turning point in some ways in American history that was essentially a white middle class experience. Um, now, now, these kind of qualifications, not something I'm going to make every time as I go on, but it's just something I felt like I needed to say. Having said that, I attempt to move on. Um, I'm signed up to um, a history website. I forget the exact name of it. I should be more precise about these things. So you can rush to your computer and, and uh, look it up while I'm talking. Maybe that's why I don't do it. Anyhow, I'm signed up to some history website. And I get notes every, was it, a couple of days uh, about what happened on that particular day in history. And it goes all the way back to, you know, like uh, ancient times all the way up to the present. Uh, things like Emancipation Proclamation is signed by Lincoln this day. Or Pearl Harbor bomb. Barack Obama, first black president elected on this day in history. Donald Trump impeached and indicted. You know, that's looking into the future. That's not history. Maybe into the near future. Um, uh, and this past, this past Saturday, which was the 19th, I think, um, I got this note from the, uh, this day in, from the history website, this day in history. Uh, I uh, take the paper clip off and I look at it and it says, on this day in 1969, the grooviest, it says here, <laughs> the grooviest event in music history, the Woodstock Music Festival, uh, drew to a close after three days of peace, love, and rock and roll in upstate New York. Conceived as three days of peace and music, which I guess it really was. Woodstock was a product of a partnership between John Roberts, I don't know if that's Justice John Roberts, but who knows, right? Joel Rosenman, Artie Cornfield, Cornfield and Michael Lang. See, the Jews were behind it. Their idea was to make enough money from the event to build a recording studio near the arty New York town of Woodstock. So it was originally uh, meant to be, if you see, um, there's a couple of different documentaries on Woodstock, um, I guess including the main one, I don't know. But um, uh, there are documentaries on Woodstock, which the original intent of the people who organized this uh, festival was uh, they were producers and, are, you know, and music guys, and they wanted to make some money, and apparently here they wanted to build a recording studio. When they couldn't find an appropriate venue in the town itself uh, for the concert, the promoters decided to hold a festival on a 600-acre dairy farm in Bethel, New York, some 50 miles from Woodstock, owned by Max Yasger, who was uh, <clears throat> a dairy farmer. By the time the weekend of the festival arrived, the group had sold a total of 186,000 tickets and expected no more than 200,000 people to show up. By Friday night, however, thousands of eager early arrivals were pushing against the entrance gates. 
Fearing they could not control the crowds, the promoters made the decision to open the concert to everyone free of charge. This is something that would only happen or very likely would only happen back in the 60s. That was part of the part of what was in the air back then. Uh, too many people, well, let them all in for nothing. <laughs> that came and went very quick in American history. Free of charge. Just remember those three words, free of charge. Is there anything that's free of charge? Anyhow, close to half a million people. Actually, some people say it's as many as a million. But, you know, if you ask people my generation about um, where you would were you at Woodstock, was you at the Woodstock then? Were you there? Everybody uh, will say maybe yes, whether they were or not. Or maybe they imagined they were there. Or maybe they were high at the time and heard some music and said, yeah, I'm at Woodstock. Nobody, you can never really tell. But there's probably a couple of million people who said they were at Woodstock. If, it's like if you put together uh, in, um, you know, in medieval times all the people who said they had a piece of the true cross— the piece of the true cross would be a, a, a piece of lumber the size of the Empire State Building. So a lot of people thought they were at Woodstock. And some people, maybe some people listening to me were at Woodstock. Who knows? Um, <clears throat> close to a half a million people attended Woodstock, jamming the roads around Bethel with eight miles of traffic. Soaked by rain and wallowing in the muddy mess of Yasker's fields, young fans best described as hippies, <laughs> groovy hippies, euphorically took in the performances of acts like Janis Joplin, Arlo Guthrie, Joe Cocker, Joan Baez, Creedence Clearwater Revival, The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Sly and the Family Stone, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. The most memorable moment of the concert for many fans was the closing performance by Jimi Hendrix, who gave a rambling solo guitar performance of the Star Spangled Banner. With not enough bathroom facilities and first aid tents to accommodate such a huge crowd, many described the atmosphere at the festival as chaotic. Uh, there were surprisingly few episodes of violence, though one teenager was accidentally run over and killed by a tractor, and another died from a drug overdose. A number of musicians performed songs expressing their opposition to the Vietnam War, a sentiment that was enthusiastically shared by the vast majority of the audience. Absolutely. Uh, groovy hippies, right? But they knew what was right and what was wrong in terms of foreign policy, the same as it is now. And people know it's wrong now. An endless war, an endless war. Later, the term Woodstock Nation would be used as a general term to describe the youth counterculture of the 60s. Um, yeah, the Woodstock Nation, it was, but there's always a kind of a cultural leg. There's a cultural leg. Sometimes things... Uh, politically and socially on the ground have gone out of style for a year or even two years uh, while somehow uh, symbolically, culturally on the top somewhere else, uh, the old way of doing things or apparent, the, the old apparent way of doing things is still going on. So history always has that, uh, you know, that sort of lag, that really weird lag. But anyhow, Woodstock... Woodstock was there, and Woodstock was uh, a representation of a huge movement uh, of an American generation, and people remember it in a kind of a bittersweet way. Child of God. 
It's interesting. You can you can hear it in the in the lyrics of the song. I mean, actually, what was happening in 1969 in the summer of 1969, uh, peace and love uh, were sort of very rapidly going out of style by that time. By the time Woodstock happened, and um, things were getting what was uh, referred to once upon a time euphemistically as weird back in the day. People used that word weird, which meant not cool, dangerous, even. Right, and you can hear it in that song, or I can hear it in that song. When you hear the song, one of one of the biggest refrains, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Well, that was a big movement in the '60s, was to get back to the earth. People had already begun to feel that, uh, and for good reason, that that they had gone away from nature, they had gone away from the earth, that there, you know, there had been too many things that were too rapid and too monstrous and too many artificial creations. And then what you get is the echo back into that song of, uh, so back to the garden, right? But it's already when they're saying we need to get back to the garden without making this an academic course, when they're saying they need to get back to the garden over and over again, they want to get back to a time when at that really there was a moment sort of in the mid-60s before Vietnam really got going, before all the really bad riots, there was still some riots, but before the really bad riots broke out in the cities, before there was a race war and a civil war in this country, uh, there, was this, um, there was this place, a lot of it was in people's heads because they smoked drugs, you know, they took drugs or whatever, but there was this place, and I remember working down in the Lower East Side, which is now a kind of very fancy place in New York City, Lower East Side of Manhattan. But then it was a kind of um, half of um, a Latino slum, half of a slum left over from uh, 
the original slum, which was the tenements that the old Jews, uh, a lot of the old Jews had lived in. And I worked down there in a welfare department. Um, and um, it was, um, there was a time, though, in the uh, early to mid-60s, even up until before 1960, 68 probably, where there was this kind of feeling of freedom, a sense of just dropping out. People had this phrase, I forget what it was, um, tune in, drop in, tune in, drop out, turn on, something, I don't know the, the <laughs> I don't know what the, uh, what the sequence is. But people were um, turning their backs on regular American 1950s, everything the same, everything looks the same, do the same, be the same culture. It was a big revolution. It wasn't as deep as people wanted it to be. And so there was this grasping feeling, even while people were doing it, right, if they weren't high, which was get back to the garden. And they wanted to get back to the garden of the original 60s. But by 69, things were really sort of uh, getting out of control. There was the war in Vietnam was dragging on and on and on. It had been going on, well, been going on way until, you know, sort of way back, if you look at, read books about it, in the late 50s, the United States was putting special forces troops in in the early 60s. Kennedy was putting special forces in. And we were already heavily involved in that. And then 65, after, after 1964, and President Johnson found some fake reason to declare a, a, a war there without really asking Congress. That was, that was the first one. Uh, since 1964, and how long is that now? 36, 17, 53 years, we have been fighting wars all over the world, American troops and forces up until this very minute. And you see there's a new declaration of war by this bullshit lunatic in the White House. You see all this, right? Um, we have been fighting an undeclared war, an unconstitutional undeclared war all over the world everywhere for over 50 years now. So much for uh, our uh, Constitution. But the war was going on and on. And in 1969, everything was sort of turning around. The little guys in the black pajamas and the people who, uh, you know, the, the evil little commies uh, had the nerve to defend their own country and were beating us. They were beating us. And it was intolerable to a lot of people. So people kept just sending more and more troops over. People, I say, the, uh, the guys who ran the government, the people who were in charge with the power and the money in the military. So the war's dragging on and on, and more and more people becoming disenchanted. We weren't winning. We weren't, we weren't winning. And people uh, don't like uh, to be on the losing side so much, right? So more and more uh, American soldiers were coming home horribly wounded, out of their minds, uh, or dead in boxes. And in 1968, which was really the turning point of a lot of things, Martin Luther King was killed which was maybe one of the greatest tragedies that ever happened in this country. The loss of maybe, I think, maybe the greatest American that ever lived. Martin Luther King and then Robert Kennedy were assassinated in the spring and summer of 1968. There were riots, riots everywhere, 67, 68, riots, riots, riots. At the Democratic Convention in 1968, the police lost control of themselves. and They didn't have much to begin with in Chicago. They were a bunch of thugs. And they ran amok, and they beat up everybody in their path, really hurting people. I mean, not even the, uh, the, uh, the commie hippies, right? They were just beating anybody they could grab their, put their hands on. Tourists, people up again, you know, people staying in hotels, they smashed them into windows. They kicked people, they hit people with batons, and they hit them when they were down. And these are big, you know, uh, thug-like boars. You know, I mean, pig boars. 
and, uh, you know, real animals. The National Guard was called out, which was astonishing to see on the streets, and even more astonishing to see on the streets because they had been called out many times against black rioters. This time they came out against white rioters, where they weren't even rioters, just white people in the park in, um, I forget what it's called. Is it Lincoln Park? I don't know. And it was uh, appalling for most of white America to see the National Guard pointing its bayonets one foot away from their own children. And this continued in the late 60s and the early 70s. And at Kent State, the National Guard, Kent State, Ohio, National Guard, when there was a demonstration, no riot at all, a demonstration, the National Guard shot and killed, I think it was four students at Kent State. This is when things, and this is where race comes into it again. This is where things really started to change in the country because the white majority was finding it unacceptable that so many white people were being killed, even in Vietnam, although a disproportionate number of black people were being killed. Black men, black men I should say. But in the streets of their own cities, it wasn't just, uh, oh, those black people that were being shot and killed, uh, beaten up by the cops uh, and the National Guard. It was white people, white children. And that was really uh, unbearable. And there was... Um, there was like a civil war in the country, and you could see, you can see it now a little bit too, that this uh, uh, this rabble rousing, you know, junior Hitler in the White House is um, is appealing in the same way that Hitler did to the worst elements of society, and you see how they're just getting worse and worse and worse, and how it's coming out, and it's a kind of a, he's he's provoking and engendering a civil war in this country. One of his top advisors, a, a real hard case named Roger Stone, uh, just recently said the other day that if there was impeachment proceedings against uh, Trump, which uh, one hopes there will be like starting, you know, like late this morning, um, that uh, there will be an uprising, that there will be a rebellion in the country. I don't know if there'll be a rebellion. Um, but if it's by the Nazis and, and the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists, maybe it'd be a good excuse to uh, throw them all in jail for the rest of their lives, which is where they absolutely belong. But to, like I say, there are resemblances, and it has to do with race, and it has to do with class, and it has to do with, uh, with things that, uh, that are sort of old themes, old themes. It has to do with who has the power, who has the money. Who is, being, who is being brainwashed, who's ignorant, and it has to do always, of course, with race. I mean, but these, these, current, these current Republicans, and uh, especially the extreme right Republicans, uh, they, they've basically engendered all this. They, they created this. Trump is a Frankenstein monster, and these people who are coming out on the streets, these roaches are coming out of their holes down in Charlottesville and other places. These people are, have been, they don't come from nowhere. They don't come from out of the void. They have been nurtured and cared for and provoked out of their, out of their holes, finally, all the way back to Reagan and the Republicans, uh, all the way back to Reagan when he first started out and the Republican Party first started taking back the country, quote-unquote. Our hearts are in the right place. We'd sing a song for the governor of California, Ronald Reagan. Zap. He's a drugstore truck driving man And he's ahead of the Ku Klux Klan When summer comes rolling around We'll be lucky to get out of town He's been like a father to me He's like the only DJ you can hear after 
country band And if he don't like me, he don't understand He's a drugstore truck driving man He's the head of the Ku Klux Klan When summer comes rolling around We'll be lucky to get out of town He's got him a house on the hill Country records till you've had your fill And he's a lawman's friend He's an all-night DJ Sure don't think much like the records he plays He's a drugstore truck driving man He's ahead of the Ku Klux Klan When summer comes rolling around We'll be lucky to get out of town don't like resistance, I know And he said it last night on a big TV show And he's got him a medal that he won in the war Weighs 500 pounds and it sleeps by the door He's a drugstore truck driving man He's ahead of the Ku Klux Klan When summer comes rolling around more from Woodstock. You know, I don't know who that guy was, um, and probably nobody really remembers much his name, uh, but you sure can hear her voice, Joan Baez. I mean, you can, even if she's... Uh, She's underplaying it, even if she's singing a duet with somebody. It's astounding. And she sang more at Woodstock, too. I mean, what an amazing voice, a voice of an angel. I don't know what her personality was like. I started reading an autobiography, no, a biography once about her. And um didn't sound like somebody, uh, <laughs> didn't sound like somebody that I'd want to be hanging around with. But uh, nobody has ever, that I know, of had a voice like that. Extraordinary. Um, uplifting, stirring, spiritual, beautiful, deep, earthy, and angelic voice all at the same time. So Woodstock, Woodstock was happening in 1969. So what was I doing? What was I doing when several hundred thousand other people my age were tripping and having sex and sliding around in the mud and listening to uh, this incredible music, uh, upstate New York? I was working. I was working for the New York City Welfare Department in Brooklyn. That's what I was doing. More specifically, uh, I actually had been working off and on in the welfare department. Uh, I took some time off in 1968 uh, because I couldn't stand the system anymore or just I was lazy. No, I was never that lazy, actually. But I just didn't feel like working anymore. And you get burned out in the welfare department. I started working in the New York City welfare department uh, about three or four months after I graduated from, um, from college in 1966. And uh, I had never, I mean, I lived out in Queens in this little quiet neighborhood. And I went into the city, that is to say Manhattan, and began working in the welfare department on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And saw things that I didn't even understand or believe existed before I saw them with my own eyes. I had never actually seen a roach. True. I had never seen a roach or a water bug uh, until I uh, started working in the welfare department. In, um, in 1966 on the Lower East Side. And uh, we saw rats. 
We saw rats sometimes out when I was growing up because we lived next to a cemetery and the rats would uh, come in and out of the cemetery. But um, <clears throat> on the street, in our, in our houses or on the streets of my neighborhood, it was uh, very cultivated and very clean and neat. And you never saw a rat. But there were rats everywhere on the Lower East Side, especially in the buildings I used to visit as a welfare worker. So I work uh, in uh, the Lower East Side, Lower Manhattan Welfare Center for... Um, for about a year or more, and then I transferred to another place and another place, and got to be the average w- worker in the New York City Welfare Department, at least back in the 60s, with all these home visits and these uh, and dealing with way too many cases of misery and poverty and illness and ignorance and the worst kind of behavior by the city, by landlords, uh, dealing with uh, cops, dealing with teachers, dealing with hospitals, and dealing with all this suffering of all the clients you had. They were called clients on, the, on your welfare case. It was too much for most people. The average person lasted six months in that job, six months. And I, I lasted about a year and a half, um, actually almost close to two years, before I couldn't stand it anymore. And I think it was the summer of 1968, I, I quit. But uh, and I and I did a few things, traveled around. I've told some stories about various things I've done, and I'll tell more stories about things I've done in the summer of '68, which was, as I mentioned before, a summer that had very little to do with any kind of peace and love, um, and any kind of, uh, you know, getting back to the earth. In fact, when I was in the welfare department in 1968, uh, before, right before I dropped out. Uh, and this was after Martin Luther King got killed and after assassinated, I should say, murdered uh, by, you know, by some group of racists. And after uh, Robert Kennedy got killed and who knows who had him killed unless it was just one particular lunatic. I don't know. I mean, they caught him, put him in jail. And I sp- suppose he's in jail forever. Right. They couldn't let him out, would they? What was his name? I forget now. Uh, I think it was Ara. He had an Arabic name. But anyhow, um, but before that, on the Lower East Side, especially on the Lower East Side, which Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1966, uh, right, in 1967, was the kind of hate Ashbury, which was the real sort of hippie drug culture uh, in the early mid-60s. And in the Lower East Side, everybody was, uh, everybody was groovy, man. Yeah, people really were. They were groovy. They were, they were taking drugs. In the welfare department where I worked, in the building where I worked, in the welfare department, um, people were taking drugs on the job. There were people who were sitting next to me at desks, uh, city desks, in a bureaucracy, working in a welfare department. I was always extremely sober, <laughs> very sober, prudish and sober, right? I didn't take drugs. But there were people working next to me. Uh, sitting there, and they would get this uh, look on their face like they were looking at God. And sure enough, you'd ask him, what are you doing? And he'd say, I could see God. Where people would walk around the hallway saying, look at all the daffodils. Daffodils in the hallway on the Lower East Side, right? And some of the people I visited on my my, uh, rounds at the welfare department, there was a lot of uh, people who came to the Lower East Side from all over the country who wanted to... uh, you know, not live close to the earth, but they wanted to uh, experience this whole culture of music and drugs, and they did. But the six, when 68 came and those two assassinations happened, everything turned. Everything turned. And it wasn't so much fun anymore, and it wasn't such a good trip. It would turn into a very bad trip. And as I said, Vietnam was getting worse and worse and worse. And there were battles over Vietnam where the U.S. were were losing, and they were, they were suffering. And... Uh, 
you you heard more and more about it, and there were demonstrations on the street, and there were there was warfare going on and everywhere. I was working in a satellite welfare department. They call it a satellite welfare department in uh, out in Brownsville in Brooklyn. I don't know what it's like now. Everything has been gentrified, but this is one of those neighborhoods that was an exclusively black neighborhood, a broken down, miserable, violent slum. Now, originally, you go far enough back, a lot of these places were uh, were broken down, violent slums, but they were populated by other people. I think this originally was, or you go back to the 20s or the 30s, it was uh, essentially a Jewish slum until it turned into a black, violent, um, you know, black slum. Um, now, we didn't go out on home visits. We didn't go out uh, in the regular welfare department. You used to go to people's apartments and you go to these various uh, tenements they lived in. But we didn't go on home visits there, and there were two reasons for it. One is that this is called a satellite center, and what we did is we referred. They didn't want people to be separated from their clients so much. You know, we would go out from downtown Brooklyn and visit these uh, neighborhoods all over Brooklyn. But somebody got the idea, and it was a good idea, that they should locate small little welfare centers in various neighborhoods to be with the people, to be with the clients, right? And we were, and we did help, and we were out there fighting with the city, uh, making sure these people got food and money for rent and money to pay their electric bill. And we were dealing with landlords and teachers, doctors, offices, clinics, hospitals, all kinds of city bureaucracies, the cops, jails. And we did that right on the spot. But another, but, so what we did was uh, we were already out in the field. They called it the field. Interesting word, right? So we, there was no need to go visiting people in their homes. However, the other reason that most of us didn't go out anywhere is because most of the welfare workers where I was in this area in Brownsville were white. And it was a time of utter insanity in the cities in this country. And in New York, we had our own various neighborhoods. We're like war zones. There were racial war zones. The cops and the firemen almost exclusively white. And they would go into these neighborhoods and this long history of not attending, not you can't blame the firemen. They always tried to put out fires almost everywhere. They didn't just stand around and watch because people were black. But um, the cops, very, very bad. They would be, beat up black people, kill black people, uh, shoot them, uh, lock them up for no good reason. They would get beaten in jail. And so there was finally a turning. It was a time of revolution. It was revolution all over there. It was uh, women's rights, gay rights, civil rights, only uh, with a pointed stick end to it, right? Because after Martin Luther King got killed, forget about it. Forget about it. And only a few years before that, um, you know, Malcolm X had been killed. So it was warfare in the street. And I, and I went out there. I took the train out there. And we walked uh, from the train to the welfare, the satellite welfare center. It was only a couple of blocks away. And, um, but uh, a lot of people walked together. And, uh, you know, the uh, people who lived in that neighborhood weren't discriminating. I should say they weren't distinguishing. <laughs> Discriminating is a good word. They weren't distinguishing between white cops, white firemen, white landlords, and white welfare workers. If you got caught on the wrong street at the wrong time, good luck to you. And um, the uh, director of this uh, satellite welfare center, uh, people at least knew what they were doing a little bit in the welfare department, was black, and he was he had been my uh, original um, supervisor in the welfare department when I first left college. Lewis Baldwin was his name. I hope he's still alive. He'd be in his 90s, and I hope he's alive and well, but I don't know. I lost touch with him many, many years ago. Um, a really wonderful man, 
He had been in World War II and experienced um, experienced all kinds of discrimination in the Army and everywhere where he grew up. He originally came from down south, and uh, he lived in New York. He was a little, tiny little guy, neat guy, very clean and neat with a mustache, which he kept clipped, and they smoked a pipe, and... Um, he was very precise about everything, and he obeyed the rules. He was a bureaucrat. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't um, slavishly dedicated doing the right thing all the time. And he would cut corners, and he knew who was right and who was wrong, and he knew who was bad and who was good. But uh, he, um, he, he taught me. He taught me a lot of stuff. He didn't teach me enough to become a full-grown man. That was a struggle that went on in other ways. and on other, I had my own wars, right? And uh, still carrying on to this day. But Mr. Baldwin, Louis Baldwin, became kind of an adopted father to me, since I had no particular father to mention uh, who was around to help me out. He was one of the many fathers that I had. And he, I think, I don't know whether or not, this is something I must have made up in my head or maybe it was true, that he had a difficult relationship with his son. Like I said, I don't know if that's true or not. And I imagined that he was, because he acted that way, he sort of picked me out as a disciple, to saw how wild and out of control and sort of lost I was. And it was the first real training I got, the first job I had, the first training I got about how to do things right, how to not cut corners. And when he saw me as part of the 60s generation violating the law and the city law and the state law all over the place to get my clients things that they didn't quote unquote deserve according to the rules, he would reprimand me for it. But then he'd smile at the same time. He knew I was doing what was the greater right thing, but he, would, he was bound by duty and by, by trying to train me in what was the right thing to do to, uh, you know, to, um, to give me these instructions on how, you, how this is what a man does. This is, this is how you go about doing this. This is how you, but if I really asked him, if I caught him in one of those little sly smiles of his when he caught me breaking the rules to give somebody more money for, uh, to get him a better apartment, to, uh, to get people violin lessons. Some little girl wanted violin lessons. That's something the welfare department did not provide. And I was always doing this. I was getting people new refrigerators when they didn't quote unquote deserve one and uh, making things up on the cases. I even invented once, I even invented a new kid in a family. I personally gave birth to a kid that didn't exist in a family so they would add extra money to the bi-weekly check so they would have extra money to buy food in the family. And he would always find out about it somehow. Or he'd ask me, he says, did they really have, did she really have another kid? She only seemed to, I'm looking at the record here, she seemed to have one seven months before that. How could that happen? I said, beats me. And he'd say, look, Mike, you can't keep doing this stuff. And then he'd look at me and he'd say, and if you're going to do it, don't put it in the record like that. <laughs> so he was uh, a guy I was crazy about, and I think the feeling was mutual. So we were out there in the satellite center, and it was a place, Brownsville was a disaster area. I mean, it was like a war zone. And there were places in the city and other cities just like that. I mean, when the firemen, cops never went to a neighborhood by themselves ever. They went, <clears throat> they went in like three patrol cars around the neighborhood, or they went five at a time. And when the firemen came to put out fires, and there was always seems to be a fire everywhere all the time. <clears throat> when they came to put out a fire, the cops had to go with them. Because people would, uh, because uh, the people who lived there or lived in the neighborhood would, would hang it on the roof and throw bricks and rocks and wrenches and bottles down on the firemen. Tried to, and sometimes the firemen. There was one time I was out there, and it was um, I think it was the fall of 1968, 
And uh, a fireman got to this tenement, which was half burned down already on a beat-up block that looked like it had been in the war. And fire is burning away. And uh, they got out their stuff, and they start to enter the building. And they got bombarded so bad by so much stuff coming from the roof. And one fireman got hurt really badly. They just stepped back and let it burn. It was in the papers and everything. But they just let it burn. And what else? Well, you know, peace and love was going on other places, but uh, this is what was happening on the ground. And what happened, uh, what happened uh, at the end of the day when I was through with my job at the welfare department, I, I used to go home and uh, uh, be with my girlfriend who lived in another apartment. I was afraid to commit myself <laughs> and uh, since been committed many times. But in those days, I was afraid to commit. So uh, my girlfriend lived upstairs for me in this little, um, uh, tiny little apartment building, almost like a brownstone. And it was a little bit like the 60s. It was, uh, most people were young in this building, and everybody had their door open all the time. And there was always pot smoke drifting out of people's apartments and music. This is the way it was. So you walk in a building, and it was like a, a big kind of, quote-unquote, groovy family, you know, which I loved coming from, uh, from such, and being such an uptight character. The closest I ever got to Woodstock, really, I was not at Woodstock. I wouldn't claim that I was there, and I wasn't high enough to imagine I was there. But the closest I ever got to Woodstock was about a year after it happened. Uh, I was watching the documentary they made of it um, in Ohio, someplace in Ohio, and I was, uh, I'd been taking a, a trip across the country, uh, a cross-country trip with my girlfriend, and the idea was um, to find myself. People were always taking trips like this in the 60s. Uh, I don't know what people do now, how people, what journeys of discovery people go on now. But in those days, people took trips. They took a lot of trips across the country or a trip over to Amsterdam or to Istanbul or to India. And I, and I did discover, I suppose, some things about my life. But as usual, whatever I discovered, I spent, and this is uh, the, the sad story of my life, I spent a great deal of energy, most of it negative, ignoring what I discovered. So I had to rediscover these things over and over and over again. Definitely the story of my life. It may be in some ways the story of everybody's life. You have to rediscover what's valuable over and over again. It's hard to hold on to it if you don't really pay attention. And I never would have gone to Woodstock. If I had been in a place to go to Woodstock, and I was, I was around in 1969, I would not have gone up to Woodstock. I was just, and I, and I said it before, but I'll say it straight ahead again. I was way too afraid. I was not the kind of person who could go to a place like Woodstock. The whole idea of random sex and, and nakedness, which was fine with me in private, but in public, loss of control, disease, you know what I mean? Other people, what you might catch, crowds, having a good time, enjoying myself, no way. There was no way I was going to allow myself to happen. When I, when I saw the documentary of Woodstock and I saw people getting wet, I don't even like to get rained on. <laughs> I mean, that's how much I have to be in control of myself all the time. And, um, but when I saw that documentary, and I think maybe a lot of other people felt that way who hadn't been there and didn't really um, leave their job or you know, had long ago quit their job and just drift up there to be part of uh, the happening. A lot of people felt that kind of envy, you know, that they're in their regular jobs and they didn't have. But once again, this is that middle class thing, that, that middle class thing. Who could afford to drift up to Woodstock in the middle of the summer um, and just uh, this was a, a, a vacation you apply for, uh, you know, at your job. You say, I'm taking a week in the summer 
to become a hippie, and I'll be back after a week, and I'll be back on the job on Monday. This is, these are people who came up there who had dropped out of college, who had dropped out of work, had dropped out of their families, who had run away, who were living on their own in any way possible, on the ground somewhere, camping and, and brownstones and tenements all over the country. And uh, it was a lot of white kids, a lot of college dropouts, and some college kids. It was the summer, after all. And um, they went up there, and um, they just, you know, took drugs, had sex. They got stinking wet, slimy in the mud because it was raining, drenching rain at Woodstock. And people had their babies up there. I think people even had babies up there. And they didn't take care that they had the right medical attention. They didn't take care that they had the... You know, the right uh, clothes. Nobody paid attention to what was right and wrong. And it was a kind of moment of ecstasy. It was a moment of ecstasy and bliss. Something that I could probably never, never have shared. Absolutely never have shared. But, um, well, anyhow, I'm mentioning this because I got the note in my mailbox that this day in history, um, about 50 years ago, Woodstock uh, was uh, happening up in, uh, in upstate New York. So that's then, and this is now, and my generation is old, and a new generation is finding other ways to amuse itself and to discover itself. I don't know how, I don't know what they would be. Much of it is incomprehensible to me, but uh, I'm sure it's going on. It doesn't just stop because I got old. But one thing that remains the same, anyhow, um, is the politics and the public dramas. The, the players change. It was Johnson. It was Nixon. It was Vietnam. The players change and the styles change, but the content remains the same. It's money, power, race, gender. Same as it was then, same as it is now. And you see, finally, this vicious son of a bitch lunatic Trump. I can't think of enough words to condemn this man who is leading us into disaster He's declaring more war in Afghanistan. The worst thing in the world is to send any more American forces into Afghanistan. We need to turn our backs and leave the same way we did in Vietnam and didn't do it until so many millions of people had been, uh, you know, who'd been injured and killed, Vietnamese mostly, and Americans too. And it's just this, this overwhelming archetypal, am I pronouncing that right? This overwhelming, overweening bullshit of patriotism.
Yeah, Jimi Hendrix at the Woodstock Festival. You want to see the best rendition of the Star Spangled Banner you ever saw. All these old, white, rich guys, almost exclusively, although there are some women and a couple of black people admitted right now to their, to their exclusive club. They're always there sending out everybody else. The country is ruined under them. Everybody is living in misery or moral vacuum. And what's the way they always rescue themselves? This goes back to before recorded time. Start a war or keep fighting a war somewhere else. And people fall for it. People fall for it. This word patriotism makes me sick in my stomach. Makes me sick. Well, anyhow, we're coming to the end here of the show. Um, As far as Woodstock goes, I wish I had been there. I do wish I had been there. And I think probably it'll bring back memories to some people who were there or lived in that generation. Um, It was a kind of um, a special time. And uh, I don't really see it repeated too much anymore. But uh, like I say, I'm I'm really out of touch with what is happening now culturally and artistically. Uh, In any case, that's the past. So you have to leave the past in the past, right? After a certain point, it gets to be rancid to keep living in the past. So, I mean, if we won't have any spiritual and emotional growth, we do have to leave the past. But when you get older, sometimes uh, the past seems to claim you more. It sort of claims you, puts a hand on your shoulder and says, just a second, remember me? And it can be very bittersweet. It can be very touching. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Oh, baby, how I Woodstock, Joe Cocker, <clears throat> doing a Beatles song. Um, well, we need to have, uh, 
we need to have battles to keep alive, right? You can't just sort of sit back and, like I say, dwell on the past, but you can't just sort of sit back and laze around in the present. Unfortunately, the, uh, the world calls to you and says there's something going on that's wrong, and can you help us? Can you do something about it? Uh, and after this speech in Phoenix the other day uh, that Trump made, where he was really off the deep end, you have to wonder how long the spineless Republicans will go on before they try to remove him. Nobody else can get rid of him. Nobody else can get rid of him. Only the Republicans can get rid of him. And do they have the guts to do it? I don't know. They're cowardly. They're protecting themselves and their own jobs and their own power and their own money. And with all this stuff, war in Afghanistan even inflamed even more now, and uh, the wars are going to go on. Inevitably, wars are happening, like in Charlottesville and in the cities. They're going to get worse and worse as long as this, as long as this Hitler type is in office. Um, it makes you desperately miss the man that was killed in the spring of 1968, the greatest American we ever had. And we need him now more than ever, and we search for him in vain. And maybe somebody will show up. But we do miss Martin Luther King. Well, it's all right. Riding around in the breeze. Well, it's all right. If you live the life you please, well, it's all right. Just, uh, just keep that down low. I, I just want to remind people that uh, this is Mike Fader, uh, last name F-E-D-E-R. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can uh, go to my website called The Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. Thanks for listening. Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring. Maybe a diamond ring. Well, it's all right. Even if the sea are wrong. Somewhere down the road when somebody plays If you're by my side